Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. Welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, perhaps one of my... Well, let me... I, I've, I met him today, but I have followed him on Twitter forever, and he's probably one of my favorite people on Twitter, G-Paw Hill. G-Paw, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Hi, folks. So the person who brought this together, junior booking agent for the Agile for Humans podcast, Amitai Schleier. Amitai, once again, you've come through. You are Don Gray should hear footsteps because I, I think you're about to overtake his role. I'm not trying to replace him, just supplement him. <laughs> Very <laughs> not good. Not compliment him, though. Not compliment him. Very good. So Amitai, great to have you back as always. Uh, always appreciate you coming on the show. Today's special. Um, for those of you out there in the Agile community, if you're not following GPA on Twitter, you're missing out. Some of his streams of consciousness that go out are, are just gold. And so it's great to have him on and actually in the flesh speaking. We've got a few topics that he's actually teed up. And I think Amitai and I are going to try to learn as much as possible from GPA today. And hopefully we can get into a good flow. One of them is uh, it's a big idea. It's kind of this big concept of code quality, external quality, and production. And it's about unraveling the quality versus quantity myth. So, GPOC, can you tee this one up for us? And, and perhaps we can see where you're going with this really big and I think very interesting idea. Cool. So, uh, first, uh, before I go there, gee, thanks for the nice praise. I, I, I really appreciate hearing from folks that are that are following my crazy threads. I uh, uh, I work best that way, oddly enough, and uh, it seems to be the way I develop virtually all my ideas is out there on Twitter, making an idiot out of myself. So it's always happy to hear that other people like people making idiots. So can you um, give out uh, your Twitter Twitter handle real quick so that people yes, can follow? G Paw Hill. That's that's actually Grandfather Hill. It's G E E P A W H I L L. G Paw Hill. Awesome. Ping me if you come if you come from the show. Ping me and uh, and introduce yourself. Yeah. Follow this this thread. So everyone out there, this is one of my favorite uh, Twitter streams to follow. G Paw. When he gets going, it's really good stuff. Always makes you think. And uh, if you do follow after listening. You know, put a hashtag Agile for Humans in there. Let them know you heard them on the show. Cool. Cool. So let's talk about this um, uh, this, this question about productivity. I, I see out there in the world that even today, um, folks are suggesting that the sorts of things that, that we do in our Agile community that we think of as quality stuff um, is somehow opposed to quantity, to to features appearing in the application, to to cards moving across the board, and I've given a lot of thought to this over the years, and I think I actually understand how that false opposition gets created and where it comes from, and and why it is false. Um, corner cutting is kind of foundational to solving move problems. A move problem is like, um, pick up that coal and put it over there. And a corner cutting might be, it's okay if you throw coal all over the floor on your way to getting it there, right? And 
Um, and that's very important in the world of the move problem. It is much less important in the world of what we call insight problems. When I sit and I think about how much function gets added to a computer program um, in a day's worth of work, the thing I'm really trying to measure there, I basically call insights per hour. It's about how fast can I think of a new idea and get it into the code? Um, typically, of course, those ideas are in service to some customer who wants a thing. And the customer wants, you know, oh my gosh, can you put a box here that lets me add comments and then email me with the comment text? Whatever. And instantly, I'm thinking about the ideas I need to pull that off. So it's a somewhat different game than the game of move problems. Now, when we start talking about the quality of the program, we're talking about at least a couple of different things. I call them the external quality and the internal quality. Okay, The external quality is like, um, <laughs> let's pick an example. Uh, is the text box beautiful? Is it easy to get to? Is it just barely functional or does it work under all circumstances? Now, these are the kinds of areas where by cutting corners, I can go faster. I can put that feature in the app much more quickly by ignoring quite a few niceties along the way. That's external quality. That's does the feature always work? Or does it cop out rather easily and give up and say, I can't do that right now? That's the, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I talk about external quality. The kind of stuff that we work on as Agilists, though, is a different kind of quality. It's internal quality. It's, hmm. Have you ever looked at a code base and said, wow, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life? Certainly. Every time. Well, have you ever looked at, uh, I've never seen an entire code base that was this way, but have you ever looked at part of a code base and said, oh, I totally get what's going on here instantly? Only amortized code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know, right? When you sit at the feet of the master, you only get to see those things. <laughs> yeah, it's true, right? That that, And so you know what I mean. If you can answer those two questions, you know what I mean when I talk about the internal quality of the code. Here's the thing. If I sat down and I wrote out the unbelievably complex polynomial that would determine how much code, not how much code, how much function I can add in a day, the biggest single term of that polynomial is going to be the term, what did I start with? So Thanks. what I'm getting at here is that the stuff I do for internal quality, having serious sets of microtests, having extremely well-factored code, having names that aren't composed of 27 compound nouns, never using the word manager, data, or agent. All of these things that I do about internal quality of the code base, far from being reducers or even, well, irrelevant or even reducing my productivity, they dramatically increase my productivity. And that's really, you know, that's kind of the unraveling right there. It's the difference between, I think most people, when they start talking about quality, they start talk, they, they think in terms of the user's experience. That's external quality. 
internal quality is the geek's experience of the same code that the user's experiencing. I cannot short internal quality and gain speed. I really never can. Um, this to me, one of the puzzles that hit me early on when we were first starting to do TDD, right? Some guy would come up to you all angry, of course, and he'd say, well, you know, I can write 100 lines of finished code a day, but now you want me to write 50 lines of test and 50 lines of code, and you tell me that that's going to be better, but that's trivially only going to produce half as much functioning code in a day. And I puzzled on that, and it took me some time to realize the mistake the guy's making. The mistake he's making is in thinking that the number of lines, of course, we all know lines of code is a dumb measurement anyway, but to thinking that he can't actually do more than 100 lines. You can do more than 100 lines of code, but only if the code you've written is crystalline. Only if the code base you're working in is crystalline. You said 100 lines of code, duh, right? Yeah. Crystalline code, okay. So, <laughs> when, I work, when I work with noobs, the first thing I focus on is this question of, <laughs> can you tell at a glance what this code does? Right? I teach them the optimization problem. I show them, um, it's hard to do without graphics, but I show folks a simple pseudocode program that says, for 1 to 50... Uh, scan and then inside that loop I say no I'm sorry for 1 to 50 read and then inside that loop still I say for 1 to 50 scan and then I exit both loops and I say write and I tell them looking at that if each one of those functions read scan and write takes exactly the same amount of runtime, and you are told to optimize the performance of the program, where do you start? Which of those three functions do you go look at first? Well, almost any junior noob, and certainly anybody at the intermediate level, instantly knows the answer to that question. And, and that is, you hit the scan function first. Why? Well, because it's called 2,500 times for every time the write function is called. I take that exact same thing and I take away all the parentheses and I say, so we just optimized a thing called program. Now let's optimize a thing called programming. <laughs> and they look at me and they're like, oh my God, I get it. Nice. Because it's true, right? We spend way, way, way more time scanning code than we do reading code. And we spend way more time reading code than we do writing code. If I'm going to optimize for productivity, I'm going to optimize for the scan. So all those vowels that people have been refusing to type for the last 40 years, really, they can go back in the text of the code. Because the writing, I, I realize that vowels are the hardest letters to type, but the writing, the, the, the writing is the thing we do the least of. It's mm -hmm. not the thing we should be optimizing for. The scanning is the thing we do the most of, and that's where we should optimize. I have All a strange this... feeling that, like, 
people who write code have a weird sense of pride tied up with how artificially difficult they've made it for themselves or how uh, sort of naturally if they don't intervene difficult it is and then leaving it that way and learning to cope with it there's some pride somehow professionally in being the person that lives there and coping with it I, but I think you're probably right I've it's, met a few of those misplaced pride well I've met a few of those devs and they're typically immature and I and I would say they lack professionalism. And in ten out of ten cases where I've I've encountered developers who are injecting complexity because they're bored, there there's not a sense of craftsmanship and the appreciation of the, of the simplicity, which I think can be coached. But I think part of it is just time. Spend enough time in some of these horrible code bases that GPA is talking about, and suddenly simplicity looks really really good. Mm-hmm. Um. If you've, I don't know if either of you guys have ever worked uh, on Wall Street for for financials. Um, you know, the guys in financial analysts, they give you degree of difficulty by telling you they need this in an hour. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> right. You, get, you, you can get your pride that way. Not only can I turn this around, I can turn it around in an hour with. A extremely wealthy, angry man screaming at me the entire time. That <laughs> is a genuine degree of difficulty. Self-creating a problem and then solving it, eh, not very impressive. Only if you're in Maybe sales. Because I've, I've been in that environment in Wall Street, and I've gotten a legacy code base where I had that kind of responsiveness. And maybe I'm lucky that that's the context in which I really learned about extreme programming because I'm attenuated to life is surprising enough. I do not need my code to be surprising. I need it to be one less thing that moves and surprises me because somebody's going to come here in a minute, any minute, and need a different thing, and I need to be able to go there. Yep. So maybe I'm lucky. Like I don't have, I don't have this overreaction to a large stimulus of that kind, and I don't have an allergy to a small stimulus of that kind, I'm attenuated well because I learned this stuff under the pressure where it was the most useful to me. Yep. Now everything else by comparison seems like, well, why would I let it be difficult? I, in case something happens, I'll be ready. Absolutely. So it makes it, perfect sense. It reminds me of reasons why we're slow. And, and, and what I mean by slow is slow to deliver. And I think Having a pristine, clean code base is certainly one, one key factor into, be, into being able to deliver sooner. Um, and perhaps one of the most significant, I think uh, J.B. Rainsberger in his talk, 7 Minutes and 26 Seconds, actually argues that to go fast, XP is, is absolutely required. And then you can start looking at other things. Uh, Gpod, do you go into any of the non-code factors that also slow these teams significantly down? Well, I do. And here's the flash that hit me today. Um, so I was working out this talk. You know, I've done this whole most significant term of the equation thing. You know, a million times I've talked about it. That's the you know the metaphor I've used. Um, and then I started thinking about the other significant terms. And I'm setting aside. Um, I'm setting aside the questions of like, uh, what do the economists call ceteris paribus? Holding equal my skill level, holding equal the complexity of the domain, right? The inherent complexity of the domain. If I hold those two things equal, then that term I'm talking about comes up as the most significant. But what about terms that are near it? Well, 
I started thinking about what I use. And I realized that the things that I do to make myself faster are, um, first of all, collaboration, right? I, I converse constantly with the people around me, including my pair if I'm pairing. But even if I'm not pairing, you know, I, I know, I feel sure both of you have been traveling down the road talking to your non-geek spouse <laughs> about today's programming problem. And she's nodding her head and looking at her phone and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Well, what was that like? And then you say, oh, my God, <laughs> it should be an and, not an or. That would solve it instantly, <laughs> right? <laughs> or whatever. So we've all, we've all had that. That's collaboration. And then I was thinking some other things, right? I happen to think best when I can draw specifically on a whiteboard. I also, another thing I do, I'm a smoker. I know, disgusting habit. Please don't start. But I go outside and I pace around furiously. And I can smoke a cigarette in about 45 seconds doing that when I'm focused and intent on a problem. And I started thinking, well, what are these things? What they are is idea stimulators. They're ways to, to get some clue as to how to proceed next. And so then I started thinking, wait a minute, now that I think of it, that's what the quality code base is too, right? One of my sources of ideas is in fact my grasp of the existing code base. And it's another form of idea stimulation. And, and so I often think of all those different things as being all part of this thing of, you know, what I started with back there. It's all about insights per hour, ideas per hour. And anything I can do to maximize ideas per hour is a win. Something just clicked in for me when you said that. Uh, you talked about external quality versus internal quality, which has to do with something like uh, an interface widget versus uh, code base. And something that I've thought before and is really clicking now is the code that we live in also presents a user interface to the programmers who live in it. And like any user interface, it has affordances. And like any affordances, it encourages certain behaviors and impedes others. Yep. And if a main sort of behavior we wish to be able to have as programmers in this code base is to, given any random kind of change that might be logical to make, have a decent chance of being able to make it without too much extra cost, then that's a property of the user interface to us as programmers. That's a very cool way to put it. We are customers to the code base just like the end users are customers to the code base, except our customer needs are dramatically different. To actually, to take exactly that, that interface widget example, I never care about the beauty of the interface. I always only care <laughs> about whether it is quick. <laughs> Thus them. There's too many. Now I'm getting hate too many ideas, ideas per minute. Yeah. My, my, my ratio just went way too high. So now my brain Turns just, out what you need for a podcast is a narrower set of ideas per minute. No, it's, it's good. <laughs> that, the, the power of editing will save this, this, this pause. But, um, this never happened. Yeah. This happens. All, yeah, we, 
This happens to us. I'm Amitai and I take a little while to catch up to the smart guest. All right, we're going to pause here for a quick minute while we get a message from Techwell about Agile Dev West that's coming up soon. Uh, Amitai and I, we're going to collect our thoughts while you listen to this and we'll come back and continue talking with Gpaw Hill. Looking for a conference that gives you customized learning options to explore Agile and beyond? Attend Agile Dev West, the premier Agile event, June 4th through the 9th in Las Vegas, Nevada, covering the latest techniques and topics no matter your level of Agile adoption. Learn both foundational knowledge and new methodologies to develop skills, supercharge knowledge, and re-energize your career growth. Take deep dives into topics such as implementation, testing, leadership, scrum, enterprise, requirements, techniques, and more. As an added bonus, the event is co-located with Better Software and DevOps West conferences. Your one registration automatically gives you access to all three programs. This means you can choose from over 100 learning and networking opportunities to build a customized week of learning that fits you and your organization's specific needs. Explore the program at well.tc forward slash agile dev. Agile for Humans listeners use the code AGILEDEV to receive $200 off their conference registration fee. Register by April 7th, super early bird deadline for a combined savings of up to $600 off at well.tc forward slash AGILEDEV. Zach talked to us, Amitai. I think you, you pulled this, how Ron Jeffries and, and Chet we're saying n- none of Agile works without the clean code base. How all of these other things that you want to do, the, the, the four values, the 12 principles, none of them are really applicable until your code is in good shape. And I think you know, part of this conversation is really pointing out why that is. It's just you cannot move fast and you cannot respond to change. You cannot collaborate with your, your customer. You can't be a good partner if your code's out of alignment with uh, with good standards and high quality because you just can't do anything. It, it's just like it's trying to walk through tar, right? Walking through tar is the perfect expression. It's That's exactly it. I often call it walking in cement. Sure, sure. But, you know, you can't actually walk in cement, whereas you can in tar. <laughs> it's just extraordinarily uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Uh, very important tip. We actually, we've done a lot of shows with, craftsmen and people who value craftsmanship you know ron quartel with his fast agile methodology along with his bent on uh, xp being at the at the core you know um and i and i think it's a consistent theme that carries through many many technical agile coaches like gpaw and amitai especially that if the code base isn't clean i mean what a, there's nothing else to teach until that's fixed so Really interesting insights there and appreciate that. The other topic that I think we wanted to go into was coaching, uh, specifically visualizing agile responses to complexity. So Jeepa, can you help us out with this one? When I saw some of the titles of, of these things that you're working on, this one really stood out as, as I'm a simple guy who likes simple pictures and it sounds like this might be a way to, to visualize conce- complex things in a very simple way. So, of course, naturally, you picked the one I have the least confidence in. Okay. But <laughs> but let's go there. 
So here's what I'm thinking. Um, I'm, I'm going to be at Lascott this year, and uh, the Lascott crew has invested heavily, right? That's Lee Nagel Scotland. They have invested heavily in issues around uh, complexity, uh, Kenneth and, and, and the whole rest, the, the theory of complexity. And so when I was proposing my talk, of course, they said to me, um, you know, the, the organizer said, you know, you don't have to explain complexity to these people. We're bought in. We know what you're talking about. So don't spend very much time <laughs> walking people through the meaning of complexity at this level. And, uh, and I thought, first of all, I thought, great. But then I thought, you know, if I have an audience of people who are themselves already comfortable with the fact that developing software is an inherently uh, chaos in the math sense process, then what can I do for them? And it occurred to me, you know, when you go back home, you're going to start trying to talk people into doing stuff. <laughs> based on your conception of of complexity with an and annoying level of excitement and tone in your voice <laughs> right what if i were to be able to give you across a 45 minute segment right what if i could give you eight or nine or ten ways to visualize how our agile practices actually connect to the complexity. So I have one that I'll just sort of rattle off the top of my head. Um, I was thinking about, so I've got this team. What does the team look like um, as it sort of forges through space? And I was thinking of this roughly arrow-shaped bundle of of. This is going to sound really stupid, okay? I'm just giving you that right up front. It's roughly arrow-shaped bundle of particles, the individuals in the team, who are headed in, broadly speaking, a direction. And in front of them are individuals that are cycling back and forth. They go out front of the team, and then they come back in the team. Um, and behind them, there are individuals that are also cycling backwards and coming back forwards. Okay, those people who are moving in front of us are the people we most commonly think of as scouts. They're out there finding things out before the team finds them out and bringing them back. Now, I want to be careful. I don't think that's a job. I think that's a role. It's a role and a taste. Some people are into that. Let's cash in on them. Some people are not into that. Let's not force them to do that. Let's not lock anybody into that position. That's why I have them sort of moving out and then coming back in, moving out and coming back in, and with different people moving out each time. Um, what about back behind? What are those guys? Well, I had to bring them up because I'm one of them. I'm a backfiller. I love nothing better than to let the team forge ahead and go back and fix that crap we left right there. That's one of my favorite things to do. You know, refactoring is a very soothing thing to me. And um, I, I love, I mean, I still like being with the mass as we move forward some of the time, but I also like going back and fixing that query. 
going back and getting that threading thing so that it's 100% tested instead of mostly it works and we just haven't touched it. Um, or whatever we do, right? I'm a backfiller. So that's what those people are doing. On the side, I see guys doing the same thing, right? Only these folks, they are neither backfilling nor uh, scouting. What they're doing is pipeline maintenance, right? Um, my friend Nyan, I'm sure you, you guys know uh, uh, Nyan. Um, uh, Nyan came into a team I was working with the other day, and you know, within three weeks, he must have changed our build in 30 significant ways. Everything from unifying the line endings in the repo to finally suppressing the almost infinite amount of text put out by a full build. Um, and and you look at that and, and what you're seeing there is he's tuning the pipeline. He's not scouting, he's not working on the main flow, and he's not backfilling. He's just making the pipeline as optimized as possible so that we can move features across it. And so I see this as this somehow I need some way to render that. I need some way that I can give you a piece of paper or just a video screen and say, take this home and show them this is how we want to set our team up. So that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. Um, that particular image came from my realization rather late in life that the tail of the comet is not actually facing behind the comet. It's actually facing towards the sun, no matter where the comet is, whether it's moving to or away from the sun. And I started thinking about, I started thinking about bodies moving through space with particles in front of them, behind them, and on the sides. And that's kind of what led me to that particular idea for a way to visualize how we set up teams in the slash agile slash complexity world. So I like the model. How does this play into cross-functional teams? I think you mentioned that people swap in and out of roles, but is that, yeah. is that how we keep that, that alignment achieved? So I had another uh, a kind of related thing, which was this. Uh, suppose we drew out all the skills. I know you could never do this, but suppose you drew a radar plot of all the possible skills in your team. And we drew each one of us. Well, I would be the guy who sucks at JavaScript, okay? Way, 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 <laughs> way below the baseline of JavaScript. And uh, my, my friend Sachin would be the rock star of JavaScript. And, um, and so on and so forth. And, and any one of those plots would be highly irregular and unsuitable. The old school response would be to assert that there is a baseline that must be had for all of those skills and that no one can join our team unless they have level five in these 175 different skill levels. The agile response with the cross-functional teams is to say what is actually important to us is the aggregate plot not the individual plot. What is important is that somebody on my team knows JavaScript and that I'm prepared to bribe him. 
And that's far more important than the question of whether I know JavaScript or not. And Sachin, um, he, he, you know, I come up to him and say, Sachin, I need this thing over there. And I need it to be three instead of four. He's like, yeah, okay, five minutes. I'm like, that would have taken me three hours to do. I buy him coffee, it works. That would be my response to that team balancing thing, is to show somebody what the difference is between individual radar plots of skill sets versus aggregate radar plots of skill sets. Now, if it turns out that you have more than one JavaScript task and you're bottlenecked on such and honey, then you may find that your team needs your aggregate plot to be a little thicker in the JavaScript area than just right. the one dot. But then you move in that direction. Presumably, he can help the rest of you move in that direction. That's right. And in fact, he has. I'll tell you what, I'm a lot better at putting dollar signs into code than I used to be. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> okay, cheap JavaScript shot. I went there. <laughs> That's right. I don't think anyone. There's going to be no I'm hate, man. No, one, no one's going to defend JavaScript, so I think you'll be all right. It is an interesting kind of take on you know the T-shaped people and the cross-functional teams. And I, and I try not to get too invested in that argument. Because honestly, a group of people willing to pair and learn will probably overcome 80% of the challenges they face. And for the other 20%, you probably need to bring in a hired gun. You know, it's, if you're really in a spot where smart people can't pair to solve, then you probably need to bring in a specialist like, you know, like, like, your, like Naeem or, or whoever right, to, right. to fix the build because you guys cannot get it on your own. And I, and I think that's a perfectly valid and actually probably one of the more pragmatic models out there. I think, too, uh, that, that, you know, <laughs> hiring a pro from Dover for something as specific as fix this pipeline, I'm tired of typing this, is a very, I, I think the pro from Dover would love that job. Yep. Here's an extremely well-defined job that I can do in three months without having to negotiate with you. Now, I think it might be interesting, knowing Nayan as I do, uh, he probably was not hired to come in and streamline the build in particular. That's one of the things that he can do. And he came in, observed, and decided that was the thing he needed to do first. I'd be interested to know how he decided that, if you had My some visibility into it. He did much the same thing I always do when I'm coaching, right? I walk in and I say, what's the what's the nearest owie I can fix? But what goes into that calculation? Is it what's the nearest owie that people are willing to let me fix that they're not actively involved with, that they don't care about, but they would be, they'd be appreciative if I did? What all goes into that calculation? Well, obviously, it's one of those crazy judgment calls, right? You, you make a decision on the spot. But for me, what it has to do with is I'm looking for something that they will let me do. And I'm looking for something that they know is hurting, especially in the beginning, right? It helps a lot if they know that that hurts them. Later, they'll trust you when you say more. When, you know, when I've solved a few things they knew were hurting them, then it's much easier for them to say, yeah, yeah, if you think that'll be better, why don't we give it a try? And, and you know, then they can experience a benefit. Of course, not everything I do helps, right? I mean, sometimes I fix a thing that didn't need fixing or made it worse. But, but obviously, you build, you know, we build relationship with a team over time, and you get to a place of being bolder and bolder in saying, nope, 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 we're changing that because you're going to like this a lot better. So clearly, you're, you're putting a lot of thought into to these big ideas from the, from the Twitter stream. You see a lot of, of this deep thinking. So, Jipa, what is the big problem facing the Agile community right now? What is it that you think is holding us back, hurting us? 
um, inflicting our own own wounds on ourselves. Um, and where do we need to go from here? Well, <laughs> that's quite a softball. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, I was. I was going for the. I, I tried to. Put, I put the softball on the tee, and now you're you're licking your lips, ready to just crush it. So I can't wait yeah. to hear what you come up with. So. You know, Ron Jeffries yells at me because for the last four years, basically, I've been sitting around taking pot shots at the Agile community with absolutely no positive advice to give, <laughs> just basically whining at length. Um, <laughs> and my list of whines is enormous. Um, but I think if I had to, if I could, if I have to choose one thing, it would be. Um, something I put in my introductory slide in every talk I give. We need to suspect all systems. We need to stop dropping these damn systems into place as if they're going to solve the world's problems. You know, the fact that you tried a thing and it worked for you on two consecutive projects doesn't make it a system that should be installed everywhere in the universe. And it, it doesn't make you anything more than kind of lucky. And the promulgation of formal systems in the Agile community is the, the is causing a great deal of harm in our community. We are losing track of, of the reasons why we decided to change the industry to begin with. If, if I'm hearing this right, and I want to make sure I am, this is sounding more like the scrum does not fit everywhere argument. Is this the tact you're taking or is it something deeper than that? I'm saying that there is no possible drop-in formula for optimizing software development. Yes, and I, and I think this is a very fair criticism of the community at large. And I know that in some recent episodes, Tom Kegley and I, will, while talking about certifications, talked about the walls of dogma that some of these structures put up and how it becomes very difficult to inspect and adapt when you have money tied to not changing. And it's, um, it is something that is continuing to grow in the community in that uh, we're, we forgot that um, the Agile Manifesto was just a status report. It wasn't the final deal. And inherently that means everything we're doing now should still be experimentation. And at some point we're going to need to report out again. And it can't be the same four values and the saved, same 12 principles, right? There should have been some progress. And, I, and I'm, I'm wondering if we actually haven't made progress yet. I think to some extent we have, although I think it's, some of it is almost uh, invisible to practitioners. You know, the XP I practice today, and I am still fundamentally an extreme programmer, is significantly different than the extreme programming I started with. Uh, a lot has happened. We've learned an enormous amount, um, and uh, and we've learned that amount through both what you would characterize as failures and as successes. Um, so I think there is news to report. Along the lines of the dogma wall, see you segued into another one of my topics. Um, in the 1650s, Francis Bacon, um, who was a pre-scientist, um, wrote a, a really famous essay about what he called um, – Idols, the four idols. And um, he meant idol, I don't know whether he meant it literally, but he did mean it to be perceived literally. You know, these were before the days of the American idol. Idol was a bad word. Uh, an idol was something you worshipped instead of worshipping God. 
Now, again, I don't know what his beliefs were about actual um, religion, but he was certainly trying to convince the world that the study of science was an attempt to observe and deduce facts about God and the nature of God. And he was accusing the proto-scientists around him of worshipping idols instead of worshipping the true face of God. He invented four of those idols. He described them as the idols of the cave, the tribe, the marketplace, and the theater. I should tell you that they don't mean what it sounds like they do, and you should go look them up. Without wishing to take anything away from his idols, um, I have conceived of another thing that I call the idol of the, the idols of the schema. The idols of the schema happens when we value a theory, a framework, a system, a model, a map. All of those things for me are, the, are roughly the same thing. When we value one of those over what is actually present. I love my picture of the world more than I love the world. That, to me, is practicing the idols of the schema. The dogmatism that we see in the community today, the insistence on dropping in systems, all of that stuff, to me, is idols of the schema. And it's exactly as stupid as putting your database of folks away in a corner in a special room, right? In the sense that it looks really good on PowerPoint, but it does not, in fact, work. And insisting that things fit to the PowerPoint instead of actually improve the situation is practicing idols of the schema and, and uh, um, valuing the wrong thing. But not only confusing the map for the territory, but trying really hard to live in the map. Yep. Yeah, that rings for me uh, maybe another way to spin it. The way that I think about it is that we have what seems like a maladaptive expectation that is pervasive in software development, maybe elsewhere, that's where I run into it the most, that's what we're talking about, that we seem to be able to expect somehow that cause and effect are going to be things that we're going to be able to understand and predict. And that once we see an input and an output, the context is not going to matter very much next time. It's pretty much going to work the way it'll work this time. And what seems to be missing, because that is maladaptive in practice, because what happens in reality doesn't match that expectation, seems to be missing is what I would call uh, epistemological humility, something like that. Epistemological in the sense that it is, there's a, when we, when we think that we can reliably identify cause and effect, we're making a claim about how knowledge can be acquired and whether we've acquired it already. Specifically, we think we have. And humility in the sense of, but maybe we haven't. And at least if we approach the next instance of whatever looks like the last instance with this stance of epistemological humility, we have a chance to notice when something is going to be different this time. We might be more ready for it. We might be less brittle when it does happen. So this is exactly why, Amitai, you and I became so close so quick. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Epistemological humility is actually a perfect expression of the stance that I feel we should be taking. And it just signals back to me what, what Lisa Adkins is coaching us to do regularly as Agile coaches is just meet people where they're at. To take it down to something very simple, 
you know, the destination is, is great to have in mind as, a, as an idea, but if people aren't there or aren't ready, you're just going to drag them along and, and perhaps abusively. I really try, I, I, I love the message of you know, the idols of the schema and, and living within the map and, and these terms because it just, it's a constant reminder back to me that, hey, people are where they are. We need to inspect and adapt and be aware. I think awareness is, is, one, of the, is one of the missing skills out of, out of modern day software development. Just being aware of where you're at is, is huge. And if you have that, you're probably ahead of people. But being able to sense where people are at, helping people be self-aware, and then taking incremental steps along, um, perhaps you'll, you'll avoid the, the tortures of, of these idols. Cool. And if I go a further step on top of what we're saying now, uh, those dudes who came up with those values and those principles we're not probably getting it from a book and finding that that caused it to work for them. There's a very good chance, I'm not them, I wasn't there, but there's a very good chance that those things worked for them because they had a theory about why and they were observing their own work. And that's what came up. And so if we hope to extend those ideas further, as we should, I would contend we're not going to extend them further by making sure that they're applied as stated by other people. We're going to get them further by discovering some version of them for ourselves or some new idea for ourselves in our own context by doing our own thinking. And we're welcome to get a head start by standing on the feet of those guys, but we got to keep using our own brains. That's how it worked in the first place. It doesn't work when you don't. Well, it, it reminds me of, of a comment that I heard at, at the latest coach camp that Amitai and I were at, is it's even Spotify isn't Spotify anymore. And what that means is there's a model that everyone wants to lay on their company that, that Spotify pioneered. But they pioneered that years ago, and they've had a thousand different iterations of that model that they moved on from, yet everyone else is still applying version 1.0. It just isn't valid anymore, and it won't work for you because you're not Spotify, and guess what? Neither are they because they just changed again today. And it, uh, Yep, it's so true. And, of course, the funny thing is that, of course, most of the software development, most of, most of the trade is actually still trying to use an imaginary 1960s manufacturing model, <laughs> which not only is a model from the 60s, but was always imaginary to begin with. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, they haven't even caught up to the, to the 80s. Um, and let alone up to the 2000 of Spotify. Yeah, that ancient model. Uh, we talked about professionalism briefly earlier, and that raised my hackles a little bit because I've had professionalism aimed against me when I tried to make the argument that, say, you know, say I spend some of my hours, let's not talk about lines of code, let's talk about developer hours. Let's say I've got eight of them per day. Uh, and I have someone who's in a hurry, who's managing me, who says, I wish you would spend all eight hours getting features out because somehow that is a linear and bad trade-off if you take any of those hours and spend them on testing. Not understanding that the testing is how we know where we are and add things. And the, the accusation that eventually came back to me is something akin to a professional would be willing to cut the corner to get the outcome that I'm after and you're somehow unprofessional valuing your, your code comfort over what I'm sure is a correct model of software development. And this is what I bang my head against over and over again as I coach government organizations that I have not cracked the nut of. And that's 
with somebody like a surgeon or a lawyer or a profession that is thoroughly established as a profession, none of us has any illusions that we could advise those people better than they know how to do their jobs. We know there's some complexity. We know they have the expertise. We give them a problem and we hope for their best to get a solution. And we don't try to micromanage it because we know that we don't know better. We know that we don't have a model for what they do that is superior to theirs. Somehow in software development, it's different. People who are managing or consuming or customering uh, very often don't have a good model for how it really works, because why would they? But this is the kicker. They don't think that it could possibly matter much that they have a wrong model of how it works. And so they continue to proceed according to it without that epistemological humility and try to manage to a result that they want. I believe that they want that result in a way that is not going to work. And they're not willing to hear us as the doctor or the surgeon or the lawyer who could tell them that's not the trade-off you think it is. Let me help you. Because somehow they are convinced that the, the fact that they don't understand software development and a lot of depth can't possibly matter that much. And it sure does. One of the things that um, occurred to me on this last gig, and, and Amitai, you know more about this gig than, than I'm willing to share with the public, but... Um, Shortly before leaving a year-long gig, I saw what had gone wrong with me in my ability to get um, middle management to adjust its policies. I realized that I had been telling them what to do and walking away. Now, as a geek coach... I never do that to my geeks, right? I never say, just do X and walk away. I say, let's go do X. And we sit down together and we work on it. Because you know what? The words I'm given don't make any sense until it's under your fingers anyway. Until you experience, right? And it occurred to me that this, you know, a huge source of my failure in working with these managers was my relative unwillingness, but also inability to actually live through their day and sit beside them the way I cheerfully sit beside geeks all day long. I'm convinced that the explanations I give geeks aren't that good either. And they're not that effective either. What's actually effective is presenting them with experiences that seem to get better when they do what I wanted them to do. And telling them what to do isn't presenting them with that experience. And I think that the way ultimately forward with these folks that seem to think they understand software development but patently don't, is actually to show them how to do their jobs with them. The same as I would show geeks how to do their jobs by sitting with them. Now, am I up for that? Well, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking I can buy somebody who will be up for it and good at it, right? Like in my next gig, I will certainly try that and see how I like it. You know, I've always been a geek, and as a result, I've always basically considered middle management and many customers as essentially mm, at best you know well-intentioned rubes 
I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. That's how I came Something up. Something interesting happened in my head when you offered your self-reflection, which is I have been a manager. I have managed this kind of stuff. And it is still easy for me to sort of other them in my head, even though I know it's like I've been one. And I, I speak their language and I treat them humanely and I am happy to go in and coach them in the way that you're talking about. It is still way easier for me to other them in my head than it is for me to other a developer. And I got to go think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting wow. exercise for the listener to complete. But as I look at the clock, we've hit nearly our one hour time box. This went by way too fast. I think I'm going to tell you, this one flew by faster than, uh, than any that we've done before. I don't know where the time went. I have no idea. Well, we only threw out about 75 ideas. Ryan, it's like this when Amitai get to, and I get to go to the bar, too. Oh. <laughs> this is the standard standard measure for uh, insights per hour. This was the hour. There you go. The insights. Nice. <laughs> Very true. Well, at this time, Jeepa, we, we love to give the guests the opportunity to to use this platform to promote anything they have going on to get things in front of the listeners to provide ways for for the listeners to interact so the floor is yours promote away and uh let us know what's going on okay so um quick like a bunny uh i have just finished an extremely long and somewhat unpleasant uh, gig and the reason i did that was in order to get together a um a war chest to pursue the project that, believe it or not, today was the very first day of. I feel like Walter Cronkite should be voicing over, and you are there. Um, because I, I did not realize, of course, a couple days ago when you said, let's do it Wednesday, that this was my first official starting day on the new, on the new project. That project is the creation of a content stream, or really uh, a bunch of sort of parallel content streams out there uh, about and around all these topics. And you saw the, the, the topic list, Ryan, and picked a couple that were of interest, and, and Amitai has seen it too. And that topic list is ongoing. It essentially represents about five or six somewhat separable streams. Um, the big idea stream is for, you know, let me see if I can make you ponder something about the trade. The um, uh, the geek Neek stream is about, let me show you this little simple hack and then talk to you about why this hack worked here and why it's a good hack to add to your toolkit. Um, and then there are, there are others along the way. Obviously, I'm a TDD fanatic, and I feel that our TDD pedagogy has been pretty weak. And so there's a stream that's just about TDD. Um, so, so this is what I'm up to. And, uh, my blog is, uh, it's really, it's the same as my Twitter handle, G-E-E-P-A-W-H-I-L-L.org. Uh, org is, there's a lot of material there, but it's written and it's somewhat stale. I've been very quiet while I was busy taking pot shots at the community and, um, uh, starting mid-April to late April, you should start seeing a great transformation occurring there as I uh, do what I can to get my content out there and uh, to uh, to start reshaping this industry, which is what I started to do 20 years ago when I became an Agilist, but seemed to have set aside for about 15 years uh, while I was in the trenches doing it. 
So that's where I'm at and what I'm up to. Some conferences we'll see you at pretty soon? Yes, uh, conferences this year so far. I will be at Agile Alliance Technical Conference in April and probably see both of you there. I will be at um, uh, the Self Conference in Detroit in May and also Agile and Beyond in May. I am going to Lean Agile Scotland. I think that's in October. I don't know what the dates are on that. I should put in one separate plug, though, which is this. Um, if you liked what I had to say and you'd like somebody to come hang out with your, your user group, an XP group, an Agile group, whatever group it is, uh, don't think you have to beg and plead. Give me a holler. And uh, if there's some way I can be in that neighborhood at that time, I will happily do it. I'm very open to giving talks right now and um, very open to, uh, to reopening my various networks from the trade. So please do hook, hook me up. Okay. I'm a tie. What are, what are you peddling these days? Well, uh, I will be in Boston, like Jeepaw said, at the Agile Alliance Technical Conference, giving a DevOps-themed talk, uh, and also at Agile and Beyond, as Jeepaw said, talking about distributed Agile, uh, specifically for the programmers who are doing it. Um, I have aspirations to lean Agile Scotland, but they're under no obligation to fulfill them. I just hope that it'll work out that I can go. We shall see. Uh, and then pertaining to things we talked about on this show, a couple Agile in 3 Minutes episodes. Episode 21 is called Predict and asks, what's your theory of software development? And tries to show that certain trade-offs you think might exist don't exist, relevant to what we talked about. And episode 24 uh, is called Invalidate and asks the question, how do you know you know what you think you know? Epistemological humility is my phrase for the day. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful phrase. And as yep. for me, um, Amitai and I got a talk accepted at Big Apple Scrum Day. So he and I will be in New York on May 1st to talk about the care and feeding of T-shaped people. And so it will involve a lot of the things that we talked about today, about how, uh, how we, we grow in our careers and, and what those paths and roadmaps and, and discussions and trials and tribulations look like and how to perhaps make that a little easier. Right, Amitai? Amen, brother. Amen. So we'll, we'll be doing that. I will be at uh, ADC West, the TechWell Conference, in June out in Las Vegas. I'll be at Agile Indy coming up here. I will be at Agile Indy on May 12th. I will, be at, I will be at the Path to Agility Conference, May 25th and 26th. And there may be a few others on the way, but uh, definitely have a busy conference schedule coming up. Uh, the podcast will be coming with me, so it's an excellent opportunity if you're going to be at any of those events. Yes, I'm a tie. So anyways, there's a, a lot of conferences coming up. The schedule will be on ryanripley.com, or you can tweet me at Ryan Ripley if you're looking for an opportunity to, to meet up and say hello. And, and please do come up and say hello. If you see Amitai, myself, or, or, Zach, or, or Jeepa, or Zach, or anyone else that you've heard on the show, we love the feedback. I, it was interesting, Amitai, at Agile 2016, probably had 15 to 20 people come up nervously. And you know me. I'm not a big deal. I'd come up and say hi, but they, they thought it was kind of weird that, hey, I've, I've listened to, you know, some people have listened to over 40 or 50 hours of us talking and they, hey, I just wanted to say hi, you know, I listen to you all the time and I'm like, that's great. I love that you came and said hi and, I, and I'm real excited to meet you and please tell me more. So it's not weird. It's totally welcome um, unless you make it weird, but don't do that. So 
But anyways, please do come up and say hi at these events. I uh, would love to hear your feedback on the show. I know Amitai and Zach and Jeepaw and, and all of the great guests we've had, they love to hear uh, your thoughts about the things we're talking about because that helps us get better. That helps us inspect and adapt and, and produce a better show for next time. So definitely appreciate all that. And uh, I think that's it for me. That's all I'm going to pedal this episode. If you want to tweet, it's at Ryan Ripley. Uh, if you want to hit the website, it's ryanripley.com. Leave your comments in the show notes. Let us know what you think. And uh, that's all I've got. So, G-Paw, Amitai, thanks for this great conversation. Uh, G-Paw, it was great meeting you. Amitai, good seeing you again today. And uh, that's it for this episode of Agile for Humans. And we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. <laughs>